And now, America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A very great and serious day with President Trump announcing a big press conference coming up on Monday. The press conference that uh, he says will prove once and for all with irrefutable evidence that he won uh, overwhelmingly the election in Georgia and uh, that the election was stolen from him. Uh, meanwhile, concerning Georgia, Georgia on my mind, uh, Andy McCarthy, the contributing editor at National Review and a fellow at the National Review Institute, Fox News contributor and one of the best legal minds around, former federal prosecutor, uh, he has a column that says that of all the indictments, now four of them, four sets of indictments, uh, Georgia is the most perilous threat to President Trump. Uh, Andy, uh, thanks for making time for us on a very busy day. What makes Georgia more perilous than even Jack Smith uh, and his indictment regarding uh, the election uh, battle to uh, overturn the election? Well, Michael, I still think that um, Jack Smith's Mar-a-Lago indictment is the most serious one that Trump faces because I think it's the one he's most likely to be convicted in, and um, it's got very serious penalties. But the reason I, I underscore the perilousness of the state prosecution here is it's, not, it's kind of immune from Trump's strategy of delay – that he is employing in connection with the federal indictments. What Trump hopes in the, on the federal side is to get the cases pushed uh, beyond Election Day in the hope that if the Republicans, especially Donald Trump himself, win the election, uh, the Justice Department would simply drop the cases or they could be pardoned. The state prosecution is not subject to pardon. Uh, the president has no power to pardon state offenses. So if he gets convicted in the state, uh, that's going to stick. And the other thing I would point out is I, I've been critical of Jack Smith's election interference indictment because I think he's dealing with federal laws that are not designed directly uh, to address election integrity, whereas in our system, state uh, prosecutors and the states themselves are principally responsible for conducting and policing elections. So I think um, Fannie Willis has an array of actual election integrity laws at the state level that are a better match for some of the behavior that went on here than what Smith is dealing with. So I think there's a chance he could get convicted here. And if he does, uh, that can't be pardoned. I think a lot of people are surprised to see forgery and conspiracy to commit forgery included uh, in in these indictments. Uh, and it's not just against Trump. He's, uh, there are a total of 19 people who are indicted here. And many of those people have been indicted for forgery. It's, it's based upon the idea that they try to put themselves forward as a duly elected electors. Uh, and uh, is is that 
the the basis for the forgery contents of this and these indictments? Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, this this points to one of the uh, interesting things I, I detect out of Willis's indictment, which is that um, as we get down from her big overarching charge, which is racketeering, which I think is a is a mismatch for what went on here. As you get to the to seemingly less serious stuff, uh, like forgery, like for example, uh, invading the uh, or hacking into the uh, into the voting systems themselves, the, the election uh, machinery, um, those charges could be more perilous for people because. They actually are these election integrity type laws that that I'm referring to. Um, they won't get as much attention as the RICO invocation does, uh, but they they are a better fit for what happened. Her difficulty, I think, with those cases or those charges are that it's going to be difficult to tie the most notorious defendants to those particular schemes. Um, but if she again, if she can get one or two of them, um, you know, Trump, Trump, I think, is charged in a dozen counts. So, you know, even one or two would be a catastrophe for him. Now, the, the way that this will go, I understand. And you make the point in your outstanding column, which we've posted on our website at michaelmedved.com, a column about why this is a perilous prosecution for uh, President Trump. Uh, you make the point that it's very likely under Georgia law that these proceedings, beginning with his formal acceptance of his arraignment, is, uh, of his indictments, it'll all be televised. And right. how, does, how does that work? And are they likely to have all 19 people in court facing charges at the same time? Well, it's very hard to do, but it's not impossible. I happen to have been in what I think is still the longest uh, federal criminal trial in American history, the 17-month pizza connection case, um, a, a, uh, an international mafia racketeering thing in the 1980s, which took 17 months. And we started with 22 defendants, ended with 19. Um, so you can do it, but... You know, number one, just like the sheer physical burden of doing it in a courtroom is tough. They'll have to make some adjustments. It's very hard for – I understand the judge that they have drawn in this case is fairly inexperienced. You would really – I mean, he, maybe he'll be great, um, but you'd really want to have uh, – like we had Michael Mukasey, later Attorney General Michael Mukasey, who, you know, if you were in front of him, you knew you were in federal court and he ran a tight ship. If you don't have a judge like that, it could get very unwieldy very fast. But I think, Michael, the biggest thing is those take, the cases take a long time to get them to trial. And I say that with, you know, having, having prosecuted cases with over a dozen defendants a few times where they were just like bad guys, you know, normal crooks, whereas the, guy, the people who've been indicted here, a number of them are lawyers, um, and they're going to have good lawyers and they're going to file extensive, extensive pre-trial motions. The thought that Fannie Willis seems to have that she can get this case to trial in six months, I think she's dreaming. 
Okay, and, and, and in terms of getting this uh, case to to trial and uh, uh, having a large televised case, let's say that President Trump proceeds with this press conference that he has promised for Monday. It's supposed to have all of the... First of all, why would you think if he does have conclusive proof that there was, in fact, uh, electoral fraud in, involved in the state of Georgia. Why did they wait three and a half years to bring it out? And secondly, okay, if if he does produce this startling evidence, not in a courtroom, but in a press conference from Bedminster, New Jersey, uh, what are the legal ramifications or the chances of some of these charges being withdrawn? Well, to begin with, I'm glad he's having the conference in Bedminster. I, I don't think it would be a good idea to go back to the Four Seasons landscaping um, place <laughs> in Philadelphia. I would have been against that. Um, I, you know, who knows why his idea of, um, you know, what's completely exculpatory compared to mine is a night and day difference. Okay, could be very different. Uh, we will talk about what happens here and the chances of either President Trump or President Biden, or Hunter Biden for that matter, actually going to jail. We'll get to that with Andy McCarthy coming up. There really are no evil people. You don't think there are evil people in the Bible? Jesus said that uh, everyone is basically good. What's your biblical... And on the Michael Medved Show, it's a pleasure always to have the perspective and the wisdom of Andrew McCarthy, who is a former federal prosecutor with considerable trial experience and uh, somebody who is a Fox News contributor, senior editor at National Review, leading conservative journal of opinion. Uh, in terms of the latest uh, indictments of President Trump, and the, uh, the, the question about who's going to go to jail first, there's a column today by Richard Rahm that I, that I talked about before you got on the air, Andy, uh, that says who's going to go to jail first, Biden or Trump. And uh, with, with all of that coming along here and a number of prominent Republicans responding to these indictments by saying that the uh, crimes... Uh, or alleged crimes of Joe Biden and Hunter Biden are, are vastly worse than any of the crimes that are uh, being imputed to President Trump. Uh, do you think that, that President Trump is making a good strategic decision by trying to relitigate, and that appears to be his strategy both in the Jack Smith election interference case, and in this case in Georgia, to relitigate the question about whether the election was legitimate. In other words, if he um, can prove in court somehow that the election was rigged, that it was stolen, he is uh, of the opinion that's a get-out-of-jail-free card. Is that a, a smart uh, policy strategy to be following? I guess, Michael, it depends on what he wants to accomplish. I, I think um, if he wants to get elected, 
which I really don't think he has a chance to do. I think he has a very good chance of winning the nomination, prohibitive favorite right now. But if he wants to get elected, the country is really turned off by the relitigation of 2020. So what helps him, what would help him in the courtroom if he had convincing evidence would not necessarily help him on the campaign trail, because I think the, the public, by and large, as opposed to the Trump part of the Republican base, has had it with 2020 and wants to move on to the very serious uh, challenges that we have that face the country in the here and now. And the 2020 thing seems to be a hobby horse for Trump, but I don't know who else is particularly interested in it. As far as a legal strategy is concerned, I do think, you know, reading the indictment, it's interesting um, that it's kind of a snapshot of what the stolen election storyline was circa November 2022 or 2020 through, uh, you know, January 2023, because it has evolved since then. But, it, you know, you don't you don't see the evolution. You see in the indictment what it was back when, which was a preposterous claim that, you know, there was a, a fraud that had been thrown out by that point by, you know, 50 different uh, courts to the point where, you know, the Trump people wouldn't even go forward on their fraud allegations because they didn't have evidence. In the three years since, you know, it's now it, we hear a lot, for example, about the 51 intelligence agents who um, uh, buried the the Biden corruption story and the uh, FBI manipulation of the social media companies so that they suppress the story and that kind of thing. So I think the idea of the rigged election has refined over time. I, it's, I don't find it particularly convincing, but I do think it's 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 different now than what's laid out in Fannie Willis's indictment. I don't know that that means he get much traction of it, it, it with it in a in a courtroom, but I, I do not think it helps them with the election. What about the uh, the charges of criminal violations involving uh, bribery and FARA violations and uh, uh, tax evasion, all kinds of uh, bad shenanigans concerning President Biden? Do you uh, do you believe that this is going to gain traction as we move forward to a Trump versus Biden campaign? I think that, Michael, if the political process does not address it, it won't be addressed because one of the most uh, appalling things that's been done by the sham special counsel, uh, David Weiss, is that he never filed an indictment in the Hunter Biden case, which means most of the uh, most egregious behavior that we've heard about, particularly in the congressional reports that we've seen in the last few weeks, is now time barred in terms of prosecution. I, I point out, for example, you know, the infamous WhatsApp message where Hunter is saying, I'm sitting here with my father and, you know, you better, uh, you know, do as I instructed. It's a, it's a very extortionate conversation, which was then followed within eight days by like a five million dollar payment to the Bidens. Um, that conduct happened. The, the, the message was on July 30th of 2017 and the, the money was eight days later. All of that is time barred now under the statute of limitations. You couldn't prosecute it if you wanted to. So I think if Congress doesn't, you know, continue to investigate that and unearth the uh, information and introduce it into the political dialogue, it's not going to go anywhere as a legal case at this point. Do you know anything about because there has been conversation in conservative media about new exposure 
of Hillary Clinton stealing money and a claim that Hillary Clinton had stolen and it's now be beyond any shadow of a doubt uh, 37 million dollars do you are you on top of this uh, that I missed that one um, <laughs> so I'll resist I'll resist giving an opinion about whether I think she would do it if she could I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll wait to see what <laughs> Yeah. Uh, again, with with all of this going on, uh, there's one thing that uh, this previous column that I mentioned about who's going to go to jail first, Biden or Trump. The suggestion by the author is that for the sake of the country and for the sake of both political parties, that both of these guys step aside with uh, an agreement that the Republican nominee and the Democratic nominee, whoever it ends up being, uh, would guarantee that they would uh, both be pardoned after the election. Uh, Your thoughts? Your lips to God's ears. (laughs) (laughs) It, It would be, I mean... Uh, again, rather than having this uh, lock her up, lock him up, lock them up, lock them all up, uh, it, it would be something of a relief. Uh, Andy, appreciate your perspective and uh, appreciate always uh, your e- extraordinarily balanced and open-minded view of what is going on in our country. In terms of a balanced and open-minded view of what's going on in our country, there is one figure who has emerged, uh, not a presidential candidate, at least not yet, but somebody with so much public support that there really is the possibility of her uniting the country. At least that is what a uh, very admiring piece suggests in the free press. We will get to that. We're talking about, of course, not a political figure, but a figure in the world of entertainment and spiritual renewal. Who are we talking about? One and only Taylor Swift, of course. Uh, We will get to that and more coming up on the Medved Show. Michael Medved. It's right here and right now and very present, and, and this is the moment. This is the moment. This is the Michael Medved Show. I see I'm too late. And can Taylor Swift uh, honestly bring us together uh, at a minimal cost of only $853 per ticket? Is that uh, really a a possible source of unity and peace and harmony here in the United States? Uh, There's a piece over at the Free Press uh, by Evan Gardner, uh, who uh, writes that she became a Swifty when she was 11 years old and became obsessed uh, buying two tickets to the 1989 tour in her cart. She says, it uh, now turns out that the majority of American adults feel the same way I do. I met 70,000 of my fellow Swifties at the Eras tour Because I am crazy, I went twice in a row, first with my 13-year-old sister and next with my girlfriend, her 23-year-old brother, and her parents. This week, Swift finished the U.S. leg of a tour that's making her a billionaire. 
146 shows, five continents, and who knows how many pounds of glitter. Some estimate the tour will gross $1.4 billion in less than half the time it took Elton John's last tour, the highest-grossing tour ever, to earn its $940 million. Tickets for Swift's most recent show at SoFi Stadium in L.A. went for $853 minimum. The uh, six nights she performed there brought in $160 million. She's worth every penny, writes Evan Gardner. Swift boosted the nation's economy. The Philadelphia Federal Reserve credited the highest month of hotel revenue in the post-COVID era to an influx of guests for the Taylor Swift concerts in the city. That's Philadelphia. And her L.A. stint boosted the county's GDP by $320 million. Other world leaders have noticed Justice Trudeau took to Twitter to plead for Canadian dates. Now, I'm not sure what that sentence means, given uh, <laughs> right now Justin Trudeau's marital situation. Just separated from his wife. Is he suggesting that uh, uh, she come perform in Canada or that uh, she date the Canadian prime minister? Barbara Streisand dated his father at one point. That's uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau. In any event, her tour has also been literally earth-shaking. In Seattle, right here, and uh, a, um, a tour that was attended at least in part by a member of the Steiner family. Uh, no more details on that. Uh, the tour produced the Swift Quake, an earthquake measured of a 2.3 magnitude on the Richter scale. The emotional gra gravity of the show was so intense that the BBC, Time Magazine, and NPR have all reported Swifties experiencing era's amnesia. While we've all heard the cliché out-of-body experience, that is literally what is happening in stadiums across the country and around the world. An associate professor of psychology at SUNY Albany explained the neurological response to Swift as essentially equivalent to staving off a bear attack? It's not just the cult of uh, Tumblr stands either. Channing Tatum and Aaron Rodgers were both caught on camera shaking it off. Girl dads from Flava Flav to uh, Mark Zuckerberg have shown up decked out in Swiftian friendship uh, bracelets or glitter. Even uh, the late Kobe Bryant was a Swifty, declaring her a certified killer. And if you think Taylor's just for the rich, her biggest demographic of fans, 49%, reports a household income under $50,000. So what's the deal? How is one woman holding up the economy, rumbling the earth, and erasing people's minds? Evan Gardner writes, for starters, she is a walking mitzvah. A mitzvah is a, a Hebrew word for commandment. Giving Alicia Keys' son a handwritten note, hugging Kobe's daughter mid-song, and most of all, giving $100,000 bonuses to the Eras tour crew, which cost her $55 million with a handwritten note and her monogrammed wax seal. Then there's the community. At a Taylor Swift show, the rituals include the You Belong With Me double clap, the Shake It Off triple clap, the lyric-inscribed friendship bracelet exchange, 
Fans make bracelets out of colorful beads that spell out swift song titles, quotes, and inside jokes and trade them everywhere from the chicken tender stand during openers to the New Jersey transit ride back home. One uh, hand signals those available for barter, while the other hand is reserved for the treasured off-limit keepsake. So there's my personal favorite tradition, the surprise songs. Each night, Swift will play two songs unaccompanied and purely acoustic that aren't on the set list. Some may hear this and dial the American cult hotline. Others, like David Brooks, might think this is exactly what we need. See, there should be more rituals. We'll be talking about David Brooks in a moment. While I don't know every kind of clap, I do know the smile on my sister's face after a girl wearing Era's merch handed her a bracelet in the bathroom of an arts and crafts store. And uh, it, it goes on. The, uh, the idea that uh, Americans can get together so deeply and so enthusiastically, why should it be impossible for, I mean, look, we have politicians who are trying to sing. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who uh, actually is featured with some shocking success in a recent poll, uh, just tried to imitate uh, van Vanilla Ice and uh, did a, uh, uh, oh, it's Eminem, it is, you're right. I've got to get my... All the white rappers look the same, right? Uh, never mind. Um, they say in this piece about uh, Taylor Swift, uh, this is the hunger Swift feeds with her bubblegum pinks and cotton candy blues. Finally, all 340 million of us in America are looking in the same direction, whether it's at the stage or her girl boss, Brat Pack of Gigi Hadid, Selena Gomez, and Carly Kloss. Taylor is neither your progressive savior nor your tortured post-feminist artist. She is, however, your long-awaited true pop star. For us Swifties, though, it will always be deeper than that as Taylor Swift moves back through her eras in earthquakes, economy boosts, and flurries of glitter. She seems to whisper in the midst of all the pageantry the words she once sang full-throatedly 13 years ago. May these memories break our fall. Each era is a reminder that even in our national epidemic of loneliness, there is one woman who's been there for us all along. And uh, does she become an answer to uh, a, a riddle that David Brooks, who's mentioned in this column, asks about very persuasively. Why, when did America become so mean? He starts out with evidence that is very tough to rebut, that in terms of accepting mean behavior, in terms of accepting depression and loneliness and isolation, something has gone terribly wrong in the United States of America. What is it? What can we do about it? We will get to that question. Uh, we will also get to uh, more about a charge of the United States developing bioweapons. Where? Uh, we'll get to that too and more 
right here on the Michael Medved Show. Uh, Michael, this is the best show. This is the Michael Medved Show. Well, I start to think that you're going to start to feel nice. You turn me. Just keep listening. I listen to this show four hours a day. To Michael Medved. And a thoughtful email came in from Bradley, and I appreciate it. Uh, Bradley says, great show today. How can any of the Georgia charges bypass constitutional free speech criteria, he asks. It seems like the Dems are pushing the envelope to see what sticks and how long voters will tolerate the frivolity of all this. Uh, the, the difficulty is that uh, in, in terms of the constitutional guarantees of free speech, the people in Georgia, the 19 people who are being indicted, including President Trump, aren't being indicted for what they said. It's not for expressing a political opinion. It's for conspiracy. This is based on the RICO statutes. RICO stands for the uh, racketeering uh, influenced uh, criminal organization. And in other words, there was a real attempt here to create uh, electors who weren't elected to get them certified, to bypass the governor and the legislature and the lieutenant governor, all of whom have denounced what was attempted, and basically to uh, break the law. Uh, you have the freedom to say whatever you want. You don't have the uh, freedom to participate in a conspiracy to rob a bank or, for that matter, to, uh, to either illegally stuff a ballot box or to take ballots out of a ballot box and uh, is it possible that uh, the charges against the 19 people who have been now indicted uh, that those charges will fall apart that they will not have the evidence that uh, they believe they have that they've laid out in the indictments and that everybody will be acquitted and sure it's possible because the way it works is you have a jury of 12 people and all it takes is having one of those people who's skeptical about the whole thing who uh, feels as you do bradley it's uh, like the democrats are pushing the envelope to see what sticks and how long voters will tolerate the frivolity of all this the voters who matter right now are going to be the voters in the jury uh and uh that is going forward and by the way, that will be going forward, too, for Hunter Biden. Uh, when his trial uh, that everyone now is anticipating, and it would be a trial brought by his special counsel, uh, that trial will probably be also, like most of the Trump trials, uh, sometime between the beginning of the election campaign, which is, you could say, two weeks, not even two weeks from now. It's... Uh, uh, eight days from now with the first uh, Republican debate sometime between then and uh, Election Day.
and <laughs> to to have trials of both a member of the Biden family who could implicate his father and uh, and trials of President Trump and some of his closest advisors and cohorts in this uh, uh, stolen election narrative. It's going to be a lot to pay attention to. And David Brooks, as I mentioned, he has a piece in Atlantic, which I believe is a uh, uh, a preview of a uh, a new book that he's doing. And the the question that he asks is, why is America so mean? And he writes, over the past eight years or so, I've been obsessed with two questions. The first is, why have Americans become so sad? The rising rates of depression have been well publicized, as have the rising deaths of despair from drugs, alcohol, and suicide. But other statistics are similarly troubling. The percentage of people who say they don't have close friends has increased fourfold since 1990. The share of Americans ages 25 to 54 who weren't married or living with a romantic partner went up to 38% in 2019 from just 29% in 1990. A record high 25% of 40-year-old Americans have never been married. More than half of all Americans say that no one knows them well. The percentage of high school students who report persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness shot up from 26% in 2009 to 44%. Just think of that. Describing persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness, 44% in 2021. My second related question, writes David Brooks, is why have Americans become so mean? I was recently talking with a restaurant owner who said that he has to eject a customer from his restaurant for rude or cruel behavior once a week, something that never used to happen at all. A head nurse at a hospital told me that many on her staff are leaving the profession because patients have become so abusive. I know former nurses who have, have left the profession. At the far extreme of meanness, hate crimes rose in 2020 to their highest level in 12 years. Murder rates have been surging, at least until recently. Same with gun sales. Social trust is plummeting. In 2000, two-thirds of American households gave to charity. In 2018, fewer than half did. The words that define our age reek of menace, conspiracy, polarization, mass shootings, trauma, safe spaces. We're enmeshed in some sort of emotional, relational, and spiritual crisis, writes Brooks. And it undergirds our political dysfunction and the general crisis of our democracy. What is going on? Over the past years, different social observers have offered different stories to explain the rise of hatred, anxiety, and despair. The technology story, social media, are drawing us, uh, driving us all crazy. The sociology story, he says, we've stopped participating in community organizations and are more isolated. The demography story, America, long a white-dominated nation, is becoming a much more diverse country, a change that has millions of white Americans in a panic. And the economy story, he mentions, high levels of economic inequality and insecurity have left people afraid, alienated, and pessimistic. 
the most important story, says Brooks, about why Americans have become sad and alienated and rude, I believe, is also the simplest. We inhabit a society in which people are no longer trained in how to treat others with kindness and consideration. Our society has become one in which people feel licensed to give their selfishness free reign. The story I'm going to tell is about morals. In a healthy society, a web of institutions, families, schools, religious groups, community organizations, and workplaces help form people into kind and responsible citizens, the sort of people who show up for one another. We live in a society that's terrible at moral formation. For a large part of its history, America was awash in morally formative institutions. And then he goes on to talk about that and what we've lost. If such flawed, self-centered creatures were going to govern themselves and be decent neighbors to one another, they were going to need some training. He's talking about the view of our constitutional fathers. For roughly 150 years after the founding, Americans were obsessed with moral education. Now, we don't talk about it. And when you do, people get indignant. Beyond the classroom lay a host of other groups. He's talking about our recent past, the YMCA, the Sunday School Movement, the Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts, the Settlement House Movement, which brought rich and poor together to serve the marginalized. And all of this has retreated for complex reasons. And what Brooks suggests is we need to begin to reassemble uh, some of those moral training institutions. And certainly go back to supporting groups like the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts and the YMCA and the Sunday School Movement and everything he mentions here. And could I also mention political parties and political organizations, which if you return to questions of character and you go back to the old Republican slogan, character counts, well, that's a contribution in the right direction, too. Uh, what about the contribution of compassion for the people who were horribly impacted by the wildfires on Maui and Lahaina? This has, believe it or not, become a political issue. We'll talk about it. We'll also talk about some of the details about the Fonnie Willis indictments and where we go from here on behalf of this greatest nation on God's green earth.